Hello and welcome to the IJGC Mentors Podcast. As editorial fellows, we wanted to learn from the amazing leaders in our field and take inspiration from their experiences. Today, we are very honoured to speak with Professor Andreas Obermeyer. Professor Obermeyer is a Brisbane-based, RANSCOG accredited, certified gynaecological oncologist or CGO. He is a full professor at the University of Queensland and leads the Queensland Centre for Gynaecological Cancer Research. With me today is Cece from Argentina, Eric from Guatemala, Sarah from Germany, and I am Emma here in Brisbane with Andreas as well. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Obermeyer. Um, and if you're happy, we'll kick start some questions and Sarah in Germany is going to lead us off. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Emma. Thank you, Professor Obermeyer. So my first question to you is what led you to gynae oncology and would you still choose this specialty? 100%. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, for a really long time, I didn't, I didn't quite know where my career is going to go. Um, I did, um, I did a, a thesis as a medical student as a, as a, um, when I did medical studies in Vienna. So I, I grew up in Austria, I should say that, and went to med school in Vienna um, and started a thesis. Um, and that was really, really interesting. And it happened to be in gynecology and it happened to be in gynecology. But before I settled on a specialty, I, I checked out other specialties as well. I realized that I was not a pediatrician. Like I can't do pediatrics. Like I'm just not the material for that. Um, I was, I'm just too soft for that. Um, I wasn't, I don't think I would have been a good general surgeon in the way, because in Austria, general surgeons, depending on their societal or hierarchical status, they either spent all time in theater or all time in clinics. And I just really thought that I wanted to have something that is mixed. Uh, and so gynecology gave me, gave me, gave me all of this. And within gynecology, I was mentored by, uh, by people with a gynecology background and I just loved it. Um, so at the end of the day though, um, you just need to recognize what you love. And I think that's maybe the challenge uh, because at the end of the day, it's all about dopamine in your brain, right? The dopamine in your brain makes you happy. Um, and whatever, if you can make, if you can make money and business with creating dopamine in your brain, then you've got a really good combination at hand. And, uh, and the combination of clinical medicine and research as it, as it was the practice in Austria, I don't know what it is now, but that really kicked it for me. That was that is giving me the real big kick and that makes me happy. And I guess that's, that's all that counts really. But you know, at the same time, I could have maybe become an ENT surgeon or something like that. And I think, you know, I don't know how life would have played out, but it happened to be that I met gynae oncologists and, um, and working with them made me truly happy. And, you know, when you've got a, when you're happy, why would you just change, you know? Yeah, very true. You mentioned, I think, three things that I completely identify with. One, that you first find out what you don't want to be. Yeah. That's generally the case, you know what you don't like. And the second is that you said also you had mentors that really inspired you. And this is, I think, for a lot of people, for me, definitely something that you would kind of, that makes a career choice, makes or breaks a career choice sometimes. And yeah, also the dopamine kick, which you're absolutely right. That's very important. So wh when you speak about the dopamine kick, what was, what were, or what was the most exciting moments, the most dopamine filled moments in your career or one of them? Um, <clears throat> I guess when, you know, this moment when you, when you do some, when you do a study and you work hard and you work for years, right? And then there is this moment when you open a file with the data on it. Like this is, I can't just, just, just describe it. It just gives me goosebumps still 
um, when I think of the moment, but when you look at the data and then you have to first look at the data and you see what the data are, in my opinion, that is pretty strong, you know, like, and especially if the data are what you want them to be and whatnot, like this can be very addictive. Um, but maybe on a more daily basis, what also gives me a dopamine kick is um, when I see my patients for who I'm responsible after surgery. Mm -hmm. um, so very often, um, depending on the hospital that I operate in, but um, very often I do rounds afterwards, um, you know, or the following day. Mm -hmm. And when you see that patients are doing really well, um, that is something that I learned from the late Tony McCartney, who has been a great mentor to me. And we did do that always. After every operating theater day, we did rounds. And uh, patients would be sitting in their bed, would put lipstick on, would try to look good and like it's hilarious, right? Um, and uh, well, for me, that is just... Um, just a, a really cool thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I also think that, you know, you mentioned obviously what makes you happy, you go for and, and you do and you do and you do it with pleasure. But I also think that sometimes in your in your career, you have moments that are not so dopamine filled and not so great. So what were those moments for you? What were the worst moments in your career? And most importantly, how did you overcome those moments? So, um, um, so, you know, we all have complications, unfortunately. And for me, those are the low moments, unfortunately. Um, yeah. And my attitude to complications changed, obviously, over time. Like, you know, I'm 58 and I'm, I'm working independently for the last uh, 18 years. Um, and in 18 years, you make a lot of experience, a lot of things happen and you change. But complication still is something that, uh, that I study with. Um, and especially if complications are severe, um, when the patient outcome is, is bad, when maybe there is an idea that something didn't go as it should have gone. Um, so, <clears throat> so for me, that is, uh, that is still, uh, I mean, not every complication, but some complications put me in a black hole, I must say. Um, not that I'm very proud of admitting that, but it, it does something to me. Um, and, um, and yeah, so you're basically saying, how do you get out of out of black hole? Yeah, um, it's a combination of both. I think I just need me time. Then uh, I just I I'm not a very social person anyway, but I become quite antisocial. Then I think um, I. Um, but I also need to talk to people about it. Um, and I think it is, you don't want to, you don't want to talk to people who you kind of depend on. Um, I think you really need to be very careful who, who you talk to um, because colleagues sometimes can be quite obnoxious. Um, colleagues can also be very nourishing and whatnot, right? But it depends on, depends on the situation. Um, but you want to talk it over with people. You want to create a situation where you can be very honest because otherwise there is no point of doing that at all. Um, and honestly, sometimes it's really cool to talk to um, people I feel close um, who are international, who don't have a vested interest. Um, and so, um, and also, honestly, my international friends, they sometimes I feel just for whatever reason, call me nuts, but I feel, I feel really close sometimes to them, you know what I mean? Because 
these are people who we tick the same way. Like the same thing makes us go off, you know? Um, and, um, and so sometimes, and sometimes I had conversations, um, sometimes real conversations over the phone, sometimes conversations on email. And then, and then this, this friend sends an email back and saying, Matt, if you think that you are the most stupid person on the planet, guess what I did? And uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and then I'm thinking, oh my God, makes me feel a little bit better. Uh, you know, it's like this healing is, I guess what I'm saying is this healing is incremental. Mm -hmm. You know, every day it will get a little bit better. Um, but it is, it's, um, I have, I've spoken to people who saying that they became so intolerant of complications that they actually stopped working. Um, and I also refer to this neurosurgeon in England. Uh, his name is Marsh, who said the only thing that he didn't miss uh, after retiring was the complications that he caused. A neurosurgeon, like this is even more, more traumatic and whatnot. And he's written a beautiful book about it. Uh, and he's a great guy. I, I read his work and I, I, I've, um, there is a very, very nice movie about him. So this guy is, is definitely worth checking out. He, he seems to remain humane in his job um, and vulnerable. And I guess to a certain extent, we need to be that and we need to remain that. But on the other hand, we just need to develop mechanisms, um, you know, to manage that. I also, um, I go, I guess we we'll talk about this a little bit later, but I have access to my own surgical data. And sometimes when I'm, when I'm in the mood and I go into my database project and I'm saying, ah, oh, this patient went well and this patient also went well. Oh, guess what? This patient also did well. So not all is bad. Um, and uh, yeah, so those are the kind of things that, that I do. But um, yeah, it's um, definitely, this is something that um, is kind of something that does affect me from time to time. Um, and if I could do my job without complications, then that would be amazing. That would be the dream, yeah. But I really think that as trainees, we do, um, all of us struggle with exactly that, with the complications. And the more we operate and the more we advance in our field, the more complications we will have or witness or cause. And I think it's so important to have a safe environment where you can reflect and you can talk about these things honestly. And I really like how you said that sometimes people that are international feel closer in those moments than yes. people that are actually around you. Yeah, exactly. Um, I led I led a mobility mortality meeting the other day uh, for Aegis, which is an Australian organization, uh, and I ran that uh, as part of my surgical performance duties. And the two presenters, they exactly described like they said, "Oh, I feel like absolute shit. I feel guilty. I, you know, like it consumes me." Um, and I thought, "Oh my god!" Like you know, like. This is exactly how I feel. So I'm 100% sure I'm not the only person, right? Um, there are lots of us out there, uh, but I guess it's also a little bit of a taboo, right? A taboo to say, well, I'm, I'm just feeling lousy about it. And I guess what we're doing here today, talking about it openly, um, could also help some people to say, well, I'm not bloody alone on this planet with, with this. You know, yeah. even... Even a, um, even a very experienced surgeon like Andreas feels this. So it's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. I have one last question. Go for and it. it's a bit of a strange question. If you had a time machine, so this is how the question starts. <laughs> Where in the past would you travel and what would you change? And you can choose whether it, it could be in the GYN oncology world or in medicine in general or history or in your own personal life, whatever you feel comfortable with. 
Sarah, honestly, I would not want to travel into the past. Like, I would travel anywhere but into the past. Like, <laughs> honestly, this is this is something so where I not want to be. Um, That's a statement. Well, re- I, like, I feel very strongly about yeah. that, right? Yeah. Um, so, and there is nothing in the past that interests me because I'm just really happy that I went over the past. I got over it. You know, um, if you have a time machine, I dial the future. I want to, yeah. I want to travel into the future. I want to see what they do, and then I want to steal it and come back and do it now. Yeah. Um, that's that's what I would be doing. Um, but honestly, um, you know, like sometimes, uh, sometimes um, in real life, also traveling and seeing other people work and other people interact with other people and whatnot is a cool thing. So I remember vividly that I was invited to Memorial Sloan Kettering to visit friends there. I, I actually went to Berlin uh, and, um, and saw someone operate there. They're all really cool things. So I don't think I need a time machine, uh, but if there is a time machine, I... I make sure that not by accident I can travel into the past. <laughs> Absolutely. I love this answer. It's great. <laughs> so inspirational. Yeah, yeah, I think such a good answer to that question. Not one that we expected, Andres. Mm-hmm. Well, no, definitely. So that will, that will give me a horror. <laughs> Um, we're moving away <laughs> from horrors. Uh, Cece from Argentina is going to ask us some questions now. Thank you, Emma. Thank you, Dr. Obermeyer, for having this meeting with us today. Um, so my first question is, at what moment of your career did you become a mentor? And how is how does this situation between mentor and mentee uh, function for you? Do you find your, your mentees or do they find you or ask you to, to be their mentors? Ceci, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, it... I think it is very likely that that I am a mentor to people, um, but I'm not sure if you kind of start your day and say, "I want, I know, I want to be a mentor to Ceci. I want to be a mentor to Sarah." Right? Um, I may want to hang out with you, and I may want to talk to you, and and we kind of find out that we have common interests, and and um, you decide that you have something, a project that you want main put on and, and we find that both really, really fascinating and it carries us away, you know? Uh, so that's maybe, that's how things develop. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't see that. Um, I couldn't see that you start with a person that you don't know and say, I want to be a mentor, this person, like, this is kind of a relationship. Like you don't get married on your first date. People say here, you um, you want to hang out with people. Uh, you want to you want to go through different stages of things with people. I normally say, if you haven't had a tough per- if you haven't had a tough time with a person that you actually don't know this person well, so um, getting a mentor is maybe more. Or be- Entering in a mentorship uh, role is maybe a gradual thing, um, not something that you jump into something, but you kind of indicate that you want to hang out with a person, you want to learn from a person, you want to do projects with a person, you want to have a conversation with a person about something, and I'd be super open to that. Um, um, and I hope that the people that I worked with in the past, even the junior people realized that. So I, I do enjoy a number of relationships that I have with people who are junior to me and I'm trying to coach them through and they're really fun. They're really, really good stuff. And um, yeah. Great. Thank you. Yes. I, I also believe it's a relationship that grows within time and within uh, maybe daily working uh, in the same place. Uh, so my next question is, as a gynecologist, which is your major objective? Which uh, is the, the biggest improvement you are expecting in, in the field? Well, 
See, I think, I mean, on a daily basis, we just need to, we just need to address the needs of our women that we're looking after. Um, so that, that, is, that is kind of happening on a daily basis. Um, on a more high-level basis, um, for me, this is making the world of gynecological oncology and the world of surgery more humane. Um, I think what, what drives me is to overcome inhumanity um, in, um, in our profession, but also in other, in other specialties. I would like to make the world of surgery more safe. I would make to, I want to make it less invasive. I want, I want to be sure that people are not scared of treatment. I want to make the treatment more effective. I want to make it smarter. Um, so this is all. This is all. All the things that I want. Um, now, if you ask yourself, well, you could say, for example, well, we're already pretty smart and things like that, and we already have pretty good outcomes. Well, I would, I would say to you that if if we if we watch what's going on, like for example, I had a teleconference this morning with Professor Ian Fraser about cervical cancer, right? And um, and so I contacted him because I, I find how we treat patients with cervical cancer almost unbearable. Like the um, patients with early cancer, that's fine. Like they have a cone or a radiohistrectomy, they get over this and their life will fall into place again. But can you all these women with advanced cervical cancer that need chemo radiotherapy? Do you talk to them about years afterwards what they go through, how their life is? And this is horrible. Like this is really um, patients with vulva cancer who have who need groin node dissections, who have lymphedema. Um, this is this is not great. So I can see. I can see that there is just so much work that we need to do in this field. Um, so what I would like to encourage people like yourself or people who watch this or listen to this, we just need to make sure that we're not becoming used to this. Um, we're not being becoming complacent. We just don't accept this uh, as something that just is as it is that that women have lymphedema after vulva cancer treatment after cervical cancer treatment this is bad this is really bad we shouldn't accept this so we we need we need to be looking for solutions to that um so i guess i guess from our first part when sarah said like you know what really turns you off is what turns me off is is bad outcomes um and i think in a way i'm also saying we need to we need to make sure that we're not too happy with what we do we need to make sure we stay unhappy about about outcomes that are simply unacceptable that that we 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 got no other it breaks my heart to to be left in a situation where we have no choice than doing a hysterectomy on a woman who doesn't want to have a hysterectomy because she still wants to fall pregnant. You know what I mean? Like for me, this is pretty bad. This is pretty bad. Um, and I'm not saying we shouldn't do this. I think sometimes we have to do this, but I just want to say here very clearly that if we say this is bad, then that will hopefully lead us that someone will think about how we can do better. But if we if we say, well, that's the way it is, then it does not set off the alarms and we are complacent and it does not force us to think about solutions. Only if we say this is bad, it needs to be changed only then this will lead to a quest to change it. Do you know what I'm saying? 
Yes, exactly. And I think it's a it's a great advice you not know, to to get stuck or stuck in in all the the good results that we may have, uh, but but see to the future and the the outcomes and the complications that these these patients have. Um, and for example, here is it's super important because in cervical cancer, as you mentioned, we have a lot of patients. Cervical cancer is our first uh, cancer here, gynecological cancer, and most of our patients are with, with advanced stage and really young. So I That's think right. it's, 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 a, it's a really good uh, advice. And I think Thank we you. need to protest against that. We need to be, our minds need to be in the set. This is not okay. It is not, it is totally not okay. We just, we just shouldn't say, well, that's the way it is, right? If you say this is not okay, then it opens the avenue to change. If you say, well, it's the way it is, right? It blocks the way to change because no one wants to change anything. That's, that's God-given kind of thing. Great. And I have a last question. Um, you are working on, on how lifestyle impacts uh, gynecans, uh, gynecological cancer. So what led you to do this and what is your ambition with, with this work? And finally, if you can share with us some secrets uh, for a, a how to design an interesting project or research project. I'd be very happy to, be very happy to. So the... The, the lifestyle thing came about endometrial cancer because in Australia, our incidence uh, and prevalence of endometrial cancer is just enormously high. Um, and so in so this is why we kind of created track record. Um, in Australia, also, we have an amazing uh, referral system for endometrial cancer. I realize this may not be the case uh, in the United States and also uh, in Europe. I don't know about South America, but in Australia, we get basically referred virtually all endometrial cancers, especially in the state that, that I am in, in Queensland. So there are huge opportunities. Um, and we really got it. Like, I should also say that I'm married to, uh, to, um, to a researcher and she's, she's a psychologist by, by a professional background. Um, and so she, my wife tells me always that I need to talk uh, to women about weight loss. And she has, when she's basically nudging me to do that, she has no idea what these conversations actually, actually look like because they're pretty awful conversations, you know, uh, and sometimes lead to complaints and all these kind of things. So it's, it's crazy. Um, but, but in endometrial cancer, we really have uh, a challenge to, um, to, uh, to discuss with women about lifestyle interventions. And so some of our studies that one of my PhD students at the moment, uh, Montana O'Hara, is doing at the moment. So we did interviews with women and talked to them about them. And so the interviews give rise to qualitative data. The qualitative data will give rise to quantitative data. And we're trying to contribute to this, to this area of research. When you're asking me about what are sort of the hallmarks of, of good research, well, um, I, reckon, um, I reckon the trials that... So trials is, is a really good way clinicians can, clinicians can have an impact uh, on patients. But I think your trials that you propose, they need to be bold. They need to be bold. They need to be worth doing. Um, and what that means by definition is you will have lots of people who are opposed to your trials, right? And it's like in business. When you have a product, you need to identify a product that where there is a market where people pay you money for it like people who want to buy it. So you want to work out what is the minimally viable market that you need so you sell your product. In research, it's very, very similar. You need to identify your key people without who you cannot do this and you work with them. But 
it's got to be bold. It's got to be courageous. It's got to be risky because if it's not that, it's not worth it. You live only once. You're, you would be, our career span is typically about maybe 30 years, 20, 30 years. One trial is going to take you about 15 years, right? So the last trial has taken us 15 years um, to, to get uh, to get good data. Lack, like when did we start lack in 2007, 2008? Now we are hopefully coming to final conclusions next year. So that's 22. Okay, well, it's again 15 years, right? So really gutsy stuff, bold stuff uh, can take you up to 15 years. So, uh, so you should make sure that you're not wasting your life on something that is not worth doing. Um, and so get your key players together, um, <clears throat> come up with, with something that is practical. It, it also needs to, a trial should, the evidence coming from a trial should be important enough to be implemented. It needs to be implementable. You are a clinician. It should be important for clinicians. Um, yeah, and then um, and then just make sure your operations your operations are cool. You set up procedures. Um, but I reckon the most important thing is that you develop vision about something. You you work on something that you really feel strongly about, um, get your core people together, and then just roll it out. We had great difficulties, like lack was totally, was, oh my God, um, lack was so um, disputed. Um, like you may think lack, the lack trial res results were disputed. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about 2007, 2008, when we started this trial, right? That was disputed. Um, that created enemies. Um, the, the, the last trial, the endometrial cancer trial, very, very similar. Like, oh my God, we were initially, we were only a handful of people who, who set up, who, who stood up and said, yes, we swear we want to do this. We totally believe in this. And only then, people flocked in and, and joined us. But at the outset, um, there's a very, very nice movie that I saw on the weekend. It's called Eiffel. If you have a chance to see this movie, see it, Eiffel. It's about Gustave Eiffel, who built the Eiffel Tower in Paris. And if you think this famous Eiffel Tower is standing here and everybody says, well, how genius Eiffel was, right? Watch this movie. He has, he has copped so much flack uh he has he was supported but before he was supported he received <laughs> so much flack and pushback like and this is really really well documented so um i'm saying i'm saying the life of of successful people are is basically a chain of 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 unfortunate events of missed successes and of, of pushback and then because people are resilient and hang in there and just follow their dreams, then, then this becomes success. But yeah, anyway, so don't let yourself getting discouraged by, by pushback and by, um, you know, by bad outcomes initially. Ray, thank That's, you. Um, such, such good advice, Andreas. Um, when you talk about those bad outcomes and going back a little bit to some of the things you talked about before, yeah. but you have quite an interest in recording surgical complications. Yeah. Um, and for all of us who are making that transition from fellow to early career consultant, surgical complications obviously takes on quite a different meeting um, in terms of how we react and the responsibility we have. And so, you know, what advice would you have for, um, for early career consultants facing those complications and, being prepared for them. Look, this is really time to just state my conflict of interest, Emma. Um, I couldn't answer this question without without mentioning this. So I started and I managed surgicalperformance.com, which is a web-based um, 
database project that I just love. Uh, it's um, it's a love child, really. Um, so I record all my procedures um, for my benefit. I do not rely on the institution recording this. Emma, you know that our institution records all cases, but I'm not quite sure what the data quality of all of this kind of thing is. I record all my cases for myself, and then I know what my uh, what the quality of my surgery is. Um, in surgical performance, we we'll also record uh, patient recorded outcomes, so PROMs. And that also comes with a patient satisfaction thing. So um, in surgical performance, say we want to know better and I want to know better. I want to know everything. I want to know everything about my patient. Um, I do it only for my private cases, as you know. Uh, because in public there is just, um, in Australia, we have a healthcare system where basically we have two streams. We have public patients and we have private patients. But sometimes the public patients that I meant to operate on, I don't actually really operate on. And someone else does that. Or it's just, um, it's just not really me. Um, so I do it only for the cases that are really, where I really control what's happening uh, and what outcome. I video record all cases, I should say. Um, so uh, that's, been, that's been also very good because if complications then happen, then I can go back and watch the video recording. And I had to do that, unfortunately, um, uh, on, the occasional, um, on the occasional point. Um, and uh, and that's been very very useful. Um, it actually brought me back to when I'm teaching myself some surgical procedures such as omentectomy and things like that. I learned so by video recording and then watching it and seeing what would I do different now. So I started doing that again um, as a mature surgeon, uh, and I video record everything, and it's been it's been very good. Um, I would also recommend that uh, we read um, we read about complications from other specialties. That's also very cool. Um, you know, for example, we we knock off ureters from time to time, um, but you'd be surprised that we're not the only ones who knock off ureters. Um, general and and colorectal surgeons knock off ureters. Urologists knock off ureters. Um, this is just one, one of them to mention. Or, for example, talk to a colorectal surgeon about leaks, leak rates, right? They have a far less emotional attitude to leak rates than we have. Like, if I have a leak, I'm mortified. Like, I'm dropping in one of my black holes that I referred to before, right? They don't. They never do. Um, they just say, oh, well, I leak, I fix it, da, da, da. So I think there is a lot to be learned from having a good relationship with a colorectal surgeon who is maybe not such of the sort of the emotional type where we approach this more sort of from a, um, from, you know, from a rational point of view. Um, yeah. And then, you know, to discuss uh, complications um, with other people is important. Um, you know our morbidity and mortality meeting, Emma. I find that a little bit formal. I'm not quite. I think there are too many people in the room to to really open up to talk openly about this. Uh, interestingly, the M and M meeting that I organised for ages, um, we're getting a lot of a lot of great feedback. So I I had um, I had an email from a senior college person uh, who who was on the call and uh, who congratulated me on how this is run and how open people can be about that. I mean, there are still 70 people listening, right? So, but we conduct it in a way that's respectful um, and that's nourishing, um, you know, and maybe not, not violent. I mean, I think what you say is such good advice. We don't exist in a silo, right? Like we have all of these colleagues outside of Ghanaionk and as you said at the beginning around the world um, that we can, yeah. you know, call on for support, whether it's just emotional support or just, you know, whatever, as you say. 
exactly so i guess i mean you guys are in this totally privileged position anyway like you are you are the international journal of gynecology cancer fellows right you know each other you have you have a direct wire emma you can ring sarah like straight away you can say sarah i just need to talk to you i'm not in a good headspace can you give me 10 minutes right and then i'm sure sarah would be a nice person and she would say oh i talked to you you know and <laughs> there is not there is no no interest you know to to want something good or bad for you she'd be just listening to this and saying for god's sake why did you do this so you know was there a reason why you do did it do it that way? Have you considered this? And then you, Emma, would be in a position to say, I totally forgot about this. It's like, you know, because there is no ramification. Mm. Just having a conversation to a peer. Um, and yeah. and your peer is on the other side of the world and there is no consequence, right? But these are the learning points. And then you're thinking, oh. How could I have forgotten about this? Like, what can I do the next time that I don't forget mm. about this? What leads to what leads to me forgetting about this? How could I miss that? You know what I mean? Yeah. Things like that. Yeah. I, I mean, I thought when you said that at the beginning, exactly that, that we're such we're so privileged to have been given this fellowship because one of the things that we got out of it was an automatic international group of colleagues at the same yeah. level, which is great you know we all have mentors um but to have colleagues at the same level around the world in an instant thanks to pedro and this fellowship is we're really lucky mm -hmm. absolutely absolutely yeah, i totally agree on the uh, on the theme of those wonderful things um talking about not work what makes you happy outside of work andreas um i exercise i try to exercise um and what makes me happy to be perfectly honest with you is when i'm sore afterwards <laughs> uh, when I, no seriously when i've sore muscles afterwards it uh, it makes me happy because i feel my body um, um <clears throat> outside work i develop software um which is which is also great so i mentioned surgical performance uh, and it is really cool because I learn about um, the anatomy of people from a different perspective. Um, I learn about the anatomy of what people want, um, and um, and business is a great is a is a great great um, framework uh, to study the anatomy of of humans. Um, I learn a language. Um, you may know that. Um, and um, and it makes me really really happy because um, because so when I'm learning with my tutor, it's obviously very painful, right? Because she always says, "You are trained not to make mistakes, but I teach you to make mistakes because you need to make mistakes because if you don't mistakes, you don't learn." So this is so different to what I normally do. So, and when I then do well, and I, I can read, so for example, on Saturday, on Sunday, I was reading three pages in this, in this language. So I learned Spanish. Um, when I read three pages uh, in this book, this is my first novel, right? Um, and it makes me very, very happy afterwards. Um, um, being with family makes me happy, um, you know, not just being, but, you know, for example, when there are kind of good times and good conversations and, uh, and good contact and things like that it makes me also happy. But I think I'm so Andreas, who... are you ready for Eric? Yeah, so 100%. Now go for it. I shall do no, my I was going to say, are you ready for Eric? Um, yeah, I was going to say exactly that. Are you ready for Eric to do all of his questions in Spanish then? I shall do my questions in Spanish then. Eric, that would hugely embarrass me. I'm pleased. Um, I'm thinking what, what I will do, what I will do. I said to my tutor, well, um, my objective was 
I want to, in a few years' time, I want to, I want to go back to Santiago de Chile. I want to sit in this cafe that I identified, and I want to read a newspaper that they have reading on their reading table, and I want to understand most of that. That's my, that's my expectation. But she said, you need to talk to people. And I said, yes, I will, because one day I will take two months off, and I will not tell anyone who I am. And I will just go to one of the Latin American countries and I will, I will just talk to people about potatoes and, uh, and buying mints and things <laughs> like that. And buy, you know, uh, shoes and how to get dressed yourself and all this kind of thing. And no one will know who I am. So I, I don't need to be embarrassed about anything. And I'm really, I did this before. I traveled to Peru before and I was actually not too bad with talking, but I couldn't, I couldn't talk right now. My, my Spanish is not good enough. So, um, but one day I will, I will speak. And one day, Eric, you and I are going to have a conversation and I'll be very, very comfortable. We can do, we can do a Latin American thing, like similar to what Pedro does. And, and I, will, I will do that, I promise you today. But you need to give me another couple of years and I need to be traveling in South America <laughs> before we do that. Take your time, take your time, and we'll be waiting <laughs> to have that talk. <laughs> Andres, I'll ask you one last a, question. It's such a beautiful language, isn't it? Like, it's a totally diverse <laughs> language. It's very complicated, though. And, um, but I think that once you get to know the language, you probably get in love with, uh, with it. Absolutely. Andreas, I'll ask you one last question and then Eric will ask some before we run out of time. But yeah. speaking of, um, you know, lang different languages and, and, um, and moving, you moved countries, which is a huge step. Um, some of us on here have done it a few times for short periods, but not permanently how you did. And so what made the decision for you to come here to Australia and to stay? It wasn't voluntary, Emma. Um, the first step was voluntary. Uh, I wanted, uh, Austria has a very hierarchical system um, of surgical training and, um, and I can see Sarah nodding here. Um, and I just, um, I just thought before, before I expire, I wanted to see, I wanted to see some really good clinical medicine. And I had a few choices um, and a friend of mine worked in Sydney before. I applied for the Sydney job. I didn't get it. I took a plane to come to Brisbane and applied for the fellow's job and I got it. I was meant, um, I was meant to stay for a year or two, um, then realized that the training program is three years that I could actually complete the training program. Uh, in the meantime, I held contact with my Austrian bosses uh, who told me Uh, that I'm not overqualified. Um, so I actually couldn't go back. I wanted to go back. I couldn't go back. Um, wow. And that was, that was traumatic. Um, I then got a job offer in London um, and I accepted the job offer. Um, but then for whatever reasons, it didn't came to that. Um, And at the same time, also, Brisbane offered a job because one of my colleagues um, had to cut back. Um, and so I was able then to, well, I first needed to negotiate with my wife because really the deal is was that we go overseas for one, a year, one or two years. And we also had no money at, whatsoever because, so your job is fully paid, right? But my job wasn't paid. So... I was paid the first year, but not paid in the second year. And so we had to sell all our assets in Austria. We had two kids at the time so that we could um, basically feed the family. Um, and then we, um, yeah, we decided that Brisbane is a good, good place to be. Um, and, um, And so that, that was the story, really. But it's a, it's a combination of voluntary and non-voluntary things. Um, yeah, wow. Hmm. There's so many pathways we can take to get to where we end up, right? In the end, it worked out really well. So I have hmm. 100% no regrets. Um, so I, I achieved 
hear a lot of things that I couldn't have possibly achieved in Austria, right? Um, and so I'm, I'm really, really happy with, uh, with how it all worked out. Um, and happiness, you know, is, is a matter of dopamine. So just that. <laughs> um, well, he won't do it in Spanish, but uh, we will move on to Eric uh, before we run out of time, although I think we could probably all talk to you all day, Andreas. <laughs> Definitely. We could, we could have the talk in Spanish, but we're going to spare that for another moment. Um, <laughs> my question is, uh, surgical trials can be very difficult to be done. Um, and you are quite an expert in surgical trials. What, what inspired you to do surgical trials like, that? for example, back, lace, fem, endo, three? Eric, because this is what we can do, because this is what we're good at. We can get good at that. Um, I could have chosen to, to go in the lab. I actually applied when I came back to Brisbane as a consultant. I wanted to do a PhD, and I applied for a PhD position. I was rejected. Maybe it's that. Um, so I just, and I thought, well, we can do clinical trials. This is something that we can do, uh, because we can, by expanding our, our proficiency and our expertise, um, we can do clinical trials. So I would, I would really encourage clinicians on this call, and we're all clinicians right, as far as I know you guys, we can do that. Like, and don't get intimidated by lay slack and whatnot. They're huge beasts. Like, start small. You can start small. You can start with a very small, small, small trial. Um, and you also don't need to find the definitive trial to start with. Start off with some feasibility studies, um, you know, that kind of lead you then to a really meaningful outcome. So do it in stages. We do that, we do that all the time. For example, you mentioned LACE. LACE started off as a small trial with enrolling 180 patients in endometrial cancer. Um, that's how it started. Lab two, this big lab two beast started off as a small thing with having, you know, just feasibility and intermediate outcomes. So um, I don't want to say that you can, uh, you can send me your ideas and whatnot, but because then I get hundreds of ideas, but <laughs> I'd be, you know what I mean? But certainly um, it, it, I think we need to develop a framework and if someone of you is interested in that, we need to identify a framework where we can say, well, these are like stockbrokers do that, right? So they say, oh, I invest in this and this and this and this, and it is not. They have a checklist, right? They have a checklist what, what they're investing. We need to do the same thing with clinical trials. We need to say, well, these are the hallmark of, of a trial that makes sense. And once it ticks all the boxes, then you go for it, you know, like set it up. Um, you need to get some training in clinical trials, but there are workshops and degrees and whatnot. Go for it. But this is something that I identified in my life is really important to me because this is what I can do as a surgeon and as a clinician. Great, great. Love the, love the answer. Um, I have another question. It may be like a little bit awkward, but if you had the possibility of giving Andreas Overmeyer an advice at the beginning of his career, what would it be? Oh my God. Um, <laughs> well, um, ideally, so interestingly, I mean, Eric, I have a daughter who is 28 and she's, she's a junior doctor in Sydney. Uh, and I am giving her advice. And I'm saying, expose yourself to to a lot of to a lot of things. So, for example, I would have liked to do a year in general surgery. I would have liked to do a year in anesthetics, um, because because then we understand our colleagues who we work with. Um, maybe do six months in urology to just to understand how these people think. Um, that would be the that would be the only thing that uh, I would have maybe done differently um, to what I actually did. Great, great. Just like exposing more to what you usually do or what we do usually do, right? Yes. Okay. Yes, exactly. Um, okay. 
if I were to plan, for example, uh, or implement the ERAS prehabilitation, prehabilitation at my institution, do you think that a study designed like that would be interesting? 100%. I think it would be very important. I think, I think ERAS cries out for a properly run trial. But you need to be very careful uh, about how you run this um, because the way I understand ERAS, this is not so much a surgical intervention, it's more a systems intervention. Um, there is lots of interface um, between the operating theatres, the anaesthetist uh, and the ward. And so you need to create a bundle and that bundle needs to be supported by the hospital who runs the hospital. So this is not just a surgical intervention like laparoscopic radiohysterectomy or merino or something like that. This is far more complex. So you need to make sure that you've got all your stakeholders on board when you do that. Okay, great. And uh, I, I, that, I think it's very important to do. It would be a bold idea. So um, it would tick a lot of boxes. Okay, great. And my last question is, it's more like, for example, uh, what do you look after in a fellow, now that you're a professor, and for example, what do you look after in a fellow or trainee? What are the characteristics that you look at after? So Eric, to start with, I'm not involved in fellow selection. Um, so other people do that. So um, this is this is not an area that I have to do. I have to do. So if people send me um, expressions that they would be interested in doing a fellowship, they will automatically all go to Dr. Garrett, who runs who runs our center. But I would be looking in uh, communication skills. I think um, I think any doctor needs to be needs to be okay with communication. Um, I would I would want to see how people handle learning, um, but this is not just limited to fellows, right? So learning is how do you handle pain? Because learning is always basically uh, getting exposed to things that you don't do well uh, yet. Um, so there will be pain. Um, one of the ways that we find out about how people do is how do they, how do you go on with research, right? Because Research is just one of those things where I think if someone does research, this person demonstrates a willingness to learn. And so um, that's that. Um, I, I, would, I would be talking to people about how to handle competition and surpetition. Um, surpetition is uh, maybe an expression that maybe not so many of you would be familiar no. with, but you can look it up. Um, it's, um, it's a term created by the philosopher Edward de Bono, um, and it means you run your own race. So the ability to run your own race, the ability to, to create your own world, um, rather than the ability to run faster in someone else's race. So I'd be looking at that. Maybe I'll be looking a little bit about handicraft and what, what, someone, what someone did surgically and whatnot. But it's more, it's more these other skills, like um, how, do they, how do they go on in life? And, um, you know, I don't think there is such a thing as born to be a surgeon. I think that's rubbish. I think it's all about putting your 10,000 hours in um, and, and when you put in your 10,000 hours, just don't lean on the operating table and, and sleep. It's just really 10,000 hours active learning, uh, where you immerse yourself, where you feel the pain, um, and, and overcoming the pain will get you out and will make you a pretty good, um, doctor and human being. Great. Thank you very much for answering my questions. I think well, that's a, um, perfect question and answer to end on well thank you very much for having me it's been it's been great fun we're uh, we're very grateful to you andreas for joining us today and um for all of the advice that uh, that you've given us i think we've all got lots to think about definitely some uh, unexpected answers to some of the left field questions um which were just wonderful to hear
No, thank you. Thank you heaps for having me. And, uh, <clears throat> and I hope, I hope this is of use to some people. And um, if there is anything further that I can help with, please drop me a line. Great. Thank you, Andreas. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much.